All right. Good morning, good morning. Go ahead, find your seat. Make your way there. Tell the chatty people around you it's time. Cut them off. Say, I love you. I'd love to talk to you, but pastor says. Well, good morning and welcome to Mosaic. Good to see so many of you made it out uh, the day after St. Patty's Day. Hope you're not waging war against a headache at the moment. It's amazing how many people we had at the 9 o'clock, which was great. 9 o'clock is early, especially the day after St. Patty's. 11 o'clock, it's, it's cool you're here too. You know, not to downplay the fact you're here. Um, we do have uh, space. So last Sunday was the first time we did two services. So this is the second week. So we now have empty seats, which is great. Great. And so we talked about last week just briefly, you know, why, we, why go to two services. Because uh, we can cram everybody in here. There's some weeks where we, you know, we're overflowing and standing room and, and that kind of a thing. And it makes us feel really good about what we're doing when we're there. Um, this is a little more empty, you know, 9 o'clock, even more so. Um, but we do it for a very specific purpose, and we did it because for us as a church, uh, as great as it feels uh, to have a very full room, uh, that's not what it's about. For us, it is about, as a church, we care about those who are spiritually searching, uh, people that are disillusioned with church, disconnected from Jesus, those who are kind of fi- trying to figure life out and what they believe. And the truth is that we did not have room uh, for anybody else, and that was not okay with us. So we went to two services, and... Uh, just so you know, um, there is room in the 9 o'clock, and what we're doing at the 9 o'clock is a little bit different vibe than what we got going on at the 11. Um, and what we're doing is kind of like a coffee house type feel. Did we take a picture? You're going to take a picture. That was my job, wasn't it? Ah, busted. Yes. I will have one next week. But we're doing like a coffee shop thing with round tables and candles, and we're going to uh, have uh, Chemexes at the tables, and Tom Mailer's going to custom brew us up some great coffee in the morning, and it's going to be a really cool vibe. But very different than this. Um, so if you prefer something that's a little smaller, more intimate, and you don't mind getting up a little early, just know uh, that that is definitely an option. So last week, we, um, we started a new series, started a new series called Perhaps, and we're looking at a life, uh, or a moment in the life of Israel uh, when Saul was king and Jonathan was his son. And last week, we talked about this idea of choice, the fact that God gives us an innumerable amount of choices day by day, moment by moment, and he gives us the right and the ability and the very spiritual uh, privilege of choosing life or death, moment by moment, choice by choice. And uh, this morning, uh, we're continuing to to look at this particular story, and we're going to talk about risk. We're going to talk about risk, which may or may not be pretty uncomfortable. I had one person pull me aside after the first service and said, hey, I just want to tell you congratulations. I hated your sermon. (laughs) Made me very uncomfortable. And so he said, good job. (laughs) So I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I want to talk about I want to talk about risk. Uh, because it's a very real issue, very real is- uh, part of our faith, or at least it's supposed to be. And one of the reasons that we're looking at this particular passage is not just the fact that it's a really cool story, um, very heroic, neat story. I mean, you could make a film based on this. There probably are books, children's books based on this story. It's a great story, but it stands in, in contrast to the way that many of us live our lives, almost blindingly so, completely different. So we talked about choice this morning. I want to talk about risk. 
Can you remember back to maybe something you did in the past? Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was recently where you did something, you tried something, you attempted something, you took a risk, and looking back, you think, I can't believe I did that. And if you had to do it again, you're not so sure you would do it that way again. When Megan and I first started uh, serving in, in ministry, I was working for a, a campus ministry uh, organization here in Lincoln, and, uh, and it was great. I was, I was responsible for fundraising, though, my salary and my ministry expenses, and I really was bad at it, like really bad, and I wasn't very confident myself, and I didn't like asking people for money, so I, I wasn't able to fundraise very much, and so we're pouring our lives out to these kids. Uh, absolutely loved it. The kids we got to hang out with were like the very wild kids. Um, I was, did campus ministry at Southeast High School, and for some reason we attracted all the kids that are like, hey, let's get lit and jump off the roof, you know, type kids. And they came, and so we'd hang with them and invest in them and love them the best that we could and, and help them learn about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. Uh, and it was great. It was exhausting. Uh, Megan will tell you my phone rang off the hook for the first year of our marriage uh, before we had an intervention. But we didn't make anything. Like, we didn't make jack squat. Um, that year, I made $6,000. Not a month or the year. As a married man responsible for providing for my family, $6,000. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And I look back and I'm thinking, what were we thinking, honestly? Like, and we loved it, by the way. And there were like month after month after month. In fact, for most of the first couple few years of our marriage, like, we were paycheck to paycheck. And just scraping the bottom of the barrel every single month, it seemed. And if something unexpected would come up, we were immediately in trouble. Medical expense, you name it. Life happens, because life happens. And we knew we're in trouble at the end of this month. And we would pray and pray and pray, and nothing would happen. We'd pray, God, we'd, we're in trouble, help us. Nothing would happen. And then inevitably, at the very last second, some check would come in the mail, from sometimes from people we didn't even know. Right, some person that knew that we served in ministry would just give out of the blue, and it was almost always exactly what we needed, if not more than what we needed. And we were never short, never short what we needed. And I look back and I think about that, and I'm just thinking, what, what were we thinking? That was so dumb. You know, in the realm of strategy and planning and providing for my family, it was really unwise, but we loved it. And God did some great things, but what I'm finding uh, is as I kind of move through life and get a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser, is that risk is becoming increasingly hard. Increasingly hard. I turned 30 here in two weeks. Yeah. And uh, I know some of you are like, you're 29. Um, Yeah. So I'm turning 30 in two weeks, and I'm seriously having like a pre-midlife crisis. I'm kind of freaking out about it. You know, I'm like, my 20s are gone. Like, I'm in 30s. The next are 40s. You know, I remember when my parents were 40s, and I thought they were dinosaurs. They were going to die at any day. And I'm about to turn 30. And, you know, now I'm married, and and I I think back to when I first committed my life to Jesus Christ, and even very early in our marriage, pretty new to this whole following Jesus thing. And back then, risk was relatively easy. Like, stepping into the unknown and and following Jesus wherever he would want me to go, give whatever he would want us to give, to do whatever he wanted us to do, when or how he wanted us to do it, it it happened pretty naturally. In fact, there was like like a... there's excitement to it, you know, like there was this kind of rush of adrenaline that came with risk, but I'm getting older, and, and now I have a house, and now I have kids, right, two daughters that are someday going to get married, and I don't like thinking about it, but I do already, you know, I'm thinking they're going to, there's weddings on the horizon that I'm responsible for, and, and I feel this, this pressure to make a certain amount of money, you know, every year, and to save a certain amount of money, and to be thinking about the future, and, and it's like, 
the more that God gives me, like, the more I feel like I have to lose. And the more responsibility I have, I feel like there's even that much more at stake. And so I ensure to find myself protecting what I have. Like, I want to build on it, but I definitely don't want to risk it, so I protect it, right? Everything is insured that I have, right? When I had a guitar, it was insured, right? My phone is insured, right? My house, I have house insurance. Uh, I have a separate flood insurance. I have health insurance. You name it, I have insurance for everything, right? And I get it, like J-Lo, right? She has an insurance policy on her butt. I don't have that insurance. I probably never will. But I get why she does it, right? Because she has this incredible amount of wealth. Um, most women diet. <laughs> what did I say? I said something wrong. Incredible amount of... Oh, yes. Thank you for that. Yeah, That's not where I was going, but thank you. I see where our minds are at this morning. Where I was going was... <laughs> Well, then she has a lot of money <laughs> and wealth. Jeez, people, this is church. <laughs> but she doesn't want to lose what she has, right? She doesn't, she wants to protect what the good Lord has given her. <laughs> and that I get. I'll never have butt insurance. I don't need it, Right? But I do find the same kind of pressure to protect my things, to protect my, protect my career, to protect my family, to protect what I have. And so what I keep finding in my life is that I, when I come to decisions now, like I'm thinking through those things with increased frequency as I get older. Right? And, and I'm starting to understand why we have these Christian-isms that we that we come to believe and then say and put all over our house. It says stuff like the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Right? As a father of two daughters, I want to believe that. Right? I want to believe that if I just choose to honor God with my life and, and make decisions that serve him and honor him, that everything's going to be okay. And that my life is going to become less unpredictable, less uh, unsafe, and more safe, more predictable, less risk. But what if, what if that is not the kind of life that God calls us to at all, right? What if God actually calls us to be not people who avoid risk, but people who actually initiate risk, right? What if Jesus didn't die on the cross to eliminate risk from our life, but to free us from the fear of risk? And if so, what if, what if not risking was actually the greatest risk of all, right? What if this way of Jesus and this American dream, right, or whatever you want to call it, Working, saving, right, getting the nice house in the suburbs, wearing the pleated pants and the collared shirt and the whole nine yards. What if this lifestyle and following Jesus mixed about as well as oil and water? And somewhere along the way, we just got really off track. If you have a Bible, the passage we're looking at is 1 Samuel chapter 14. And we're looking at, if you remember, this story about two people, father and a son, king and a prince, Saul and Jonathan. And at first glance in this story, it can, be, it can be hard, maybe perhaps we don't see at first glance the difference between these two individuals. Because right? it's not blinding. Right? You've got one guy who makes this extraordinary, very risky decision. God accomplishes the impossible through him, and that's great. But on the other hand, you also have this other guy who didn't exactly do anything particularly wrong. He didn't choose anything particularly evil. And so perhaps at first glance it doesn't look like that big of a difference. 
And if you remember, they're at war with the Philistines. Israel's at war with the Philistines, and they're incredibly outnumbered. The Israelites, many of them, their soldiers have run away in fear. They're hidden. Some of them have turned on their own people. Some of them have gone home. And they're down to 600 men. Right? The Philistines, on the other hand, they have 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and we're told as many soldiers as the sands of the sea. And Israel's down to two swords, one for Saul and one for Jonathan. So let's just pause there for a minute. Who could really, like, can we really blame Saul for not wanting to engage this battle? Right? Can, we, can we, I mean, I understand this. Right? I, I get this. Can we really point the finger at Saul and say, and, and blame him for not wanting to go pick a fight where he's tremendously outnumbered in what would be, without the spiritual language, just a really big risk. Right, so Saul decides in this moment what he's going to do is he's going to go take a nap. Right, he's going to go lay down under a tree and go to sleep. And there's nothing wrong with sleep. Right? Usually sleep is generally pretty good. I like sleep. Last night I wish I would have gotten more of sleep. Sleep, being, being asleep might be a part of the best part of your day. And it might be a part of the day when you're at your best because you're causing the least amount of damage. <laughs> Just saying. Right, this is where Saul's at. Right, Saul is, decides he's going to lay down. He's not going to engage. He's not going to act. He's going to sit back and go to sleep. But not Jonathan. Not Jonathan. So 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Here's what we're told. It says, Then Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. That was a derogatory term, in case you didn't catch that. Come on, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And his armor bearer, in verse 7, said in reply, Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Such a curious response. Maybe he was just inspired by this kind of William Wallace-esque speech. Let's go pick a fight. Because God can save whether by many or by few. Let's go pick a fight. But then he prefaces it with, perhaps God, perhaps God will act. Perhaps God will help us. Maybe. Perhaps. Not, that particular part is not very inspiring. Perhaps it's a word that is laced with uncertainty. Laced with uncertainty. Jonathan had no assurance of success in this matter. He didn't know that God was going to come through for him, which is why he says perhaps. Which means God didn't show up in the middle of the night and talk to Jonathan and say, hey, go do this, and I'm going to make sure that you are successful in this. I'm going to eliminate risk from your life. This isn't going to really risk anything, because I'm telling you right now, you're going to have a victory. It doesn't say that. It says perhaps, which tells us that Jonathan had some doubts. He wasn't sure, but he's going to act anyway. And so he says, let's go over there and let them see us. Now, I don't know a lot about war strategy. I never read The Art of War. I heard it's pretty good. Um, I wasn't a Boy Scout, not trained in military strategy. But I do know that when you are outnumbered, by an enemy, you don't just watch, waltz out in the middle of the wherever and let them see you, right? If anything, you hide or you ambush them. You sneak through the darkness, right? You catch them by surprise. But not Jonathan. Jonathan says, no, 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 no. We're going to go let them see us. And then he says a curious thing. It's part of his strategy. He says, if they say, come up to us, we'll know that the Lord has delivered them into our hands. Of course they're going to say that, you know? But he says, that's, that's going to be our sign. That's going to be our sign that we're going to move. Now, Jonathan wasn't delusional, and I think it's important that we get this. Right? He didn't have mental health issues. He wasn't looking for a cheap thrill. In fact, there's nothing in the text, and here's what we need to look for in something like this, a text. Right? Maybe it's a great story, but if Jonathan's wrong, if he made the wrong decision, the text will clue you into that. 
Right? The text will clue you into the fact that we need to be second-guessing Jonathan on this one. But what we find about Jonathan, in, not just in this story, but throughout his life, is that he was a good man. He was a man of character. And he was a trained soldier, warrior. There's nothing in the text that tells us that we should question his actions. And instead, God actually honors his boldness and his faith. He honors the risk that he took. Right, Saul was a trained soldier, which means he was prepared. He didn't pick up a sword and decide to be a hero. Right, we find throughout Jonathan's story, he was really good at this. But as a trained soldier, that means he also knows that on paper, this doesn't make sense. As a soldier, he knows that this is an irrational decision. And then if God does not come through for him, they're done. Right? Either God comes through or they're through. Jonathan knows that much. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. So Jonathan says, we're going to move out. We're going to let them see us. We're going to move from the invisible to the visible. We're going to move. We're going to act. We're going to take what can only be described as a very big risk. And this is one of those life-defining moments. Have you ever had those life-defining moments? You look back on a choice that you made, a decision that you made, and it was like, in retrospect, you see that it was like a fork in the road. And the choice that you made in that moment determined greatly which direction that you went and paved kind of the way, set the course for everything that came afterwards. All right, this is one of those moments for Jonathan. This is a life-defining moment, and he chooses to act. Okay, so, moment of reality. Let's get real here for a minute. Uh, anybody in the house have skills with the blade, so to speak? Sword skills? Trained soldiers? Proficient in using weapons? Maybe? No? Okay. That's what I thought. Okay, so reality is, apparently we have not reached the LARPing community yet. So we're failing there. Uh, if anybody has a heart for that community, let's talk. Um, I didn't say anything bad about them. They just have sword skills more than me. Most of us, right, reality is that most of us are not going to have those moments. We're not going to have a moment in time where we have to say, you know what, let's go through the pass. Let's go sneak through these cliffs, and let's go engage the enemy in battle, right? Life or death, going to war, choosing to engage in that way, Right? For most of us, we're not going to face that situation, but the reality is that every single one of us face risk. Every single one of us have choices throughout our lives where we're going to have to make one or two choices. Either we are going to work towards risk aversion and work hard and save and choose that which is safe and predictable right, and kind of manage the risk out of our life or begin to embrace risk as a part of our spiritual journey. I get a lot of emails, a um, fair amount of emails after Sundays, and some of them are nice. Some of them are not so nice. Um, but I got an email this week, and it wasn't really either or. It was just one honest guy just wrestling through this particular passage, right, which is a very good thing. And wrestling with this whole idea of what Jonathan went out and did. Right? Why would he do this? Why would he engage the enemy in this way? Why would he act this way? Like, What can we learn from this? So he was kind of going around and around, and then he said this statement, I thought this was so good, so good, because it's so honest, and I think it just encapsulates, when I read a story like this, one of my first thoughts. Wait for it. <laughs> he said, I'm still not convinced, though, that that was a smart decision. I'm still not convinced that that was a smart decision. I love that. It's honest. Right? In first reading this particular passage of Scripture, I would totally agree. I'm not so sure that this was a smart decision. But what if smart has nothing to do with it? What if smart has nothing to do with it? What if choosing 
The faithful path and choosing the wise path are often not one and the same. What if doing what God calls us to do and doing what makes sense on paper are rarely one and the same? What if? What if it looks very, very different? What if following Jesus actually was not a life void of risk, a life where we're working away from risk, but a life full of risk? See, now, if Jonathan's story is an isolated case, right, then we can, we can walk away. Just be like, you know, that's a great story, really cool, right? We should make a movie about it, whatever, right? It's awesome that he had that bold move and that God just so happened to honor it. Lucky him, right? Lucky him. But then we can kind of walk away and ignore it, right? It's just one great story. Aaron, I get why you preached on it, but nice try, you know? That's not my life. That's not our life. So I started brainstorming this week, and I thought, you know, what about other people in the scriptures who served God with everything that they had, right? What about other godly men and women? What were their lives like? Were they more like Jonathan, right? Or did honoring God and serving God mean a life of predictability, a life of safety, a life devoid of risk? Or did honoring God and following God actually fill their life with things like danger and risk and sacrifice and pain? So I started brainstorming, right? Thought, you know what? Let's just start with the Old Testament. Some biggies in the Old Testament be a good place to start. What about, what about Moses? Right? Moses is a good place to start. God did amazing things through Moses, played a huge role in the story of God's people, right? Led a major relocation project. Took him 40 years. Long time. Used by God to rescue God's people out of unjust slavery. Man, it's awesome. But was his life devoid of risk and pain? Definitely not. Called by God to leave his home, to leave everything that was familiar to him, to go stand before the most powerful man in the world and demand that he let some people go. Not once, not twice, not three times, but many times. Called to lead God's people. People turned on him constantly. His own family turned on him. His sister turned on him. People questioned his leadership. Lots of pain. Lots of pain. What about Joseph? Another big character in the Old Testament. Right? Very godly character, celebrated throughout Scripture for doing the right things, being the right kind of man, worshiping the right God, the one true God. All right, upside, he went from a humble shepherd to uh, second in power in all of Egypt, only to Pharaoh. All right, very cool. Used by God to save the lives of hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children during a seven-year famine. That's awesome. Downside, betrayed by his own family. His own brothers turned on him, sold him into slavery. Right, as a victim to human trafficking, right, was unjustly accused and imprisoned. Lots of suffering. Lots of suffering. All for doing the right thing, by the way. What about David? Right, would one day become, become king, but as a young man, for doing the right thing, for serving the king faithfully, the king chooses to, to try to kill David out of jealousy. Has to run, leave his home, force him to exile. And God wouldn't give him permission to defend himself. Lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of risk. Daniel, right? Persecuted, imprisoned, thrown into the lions. I mean, are you seeing a pattern? Are you seeing a pattern? Right? Okay, so uh, you might be tempted to say, well, Aaron, that's Old Testament. Old Testament were hard times, right? But Jesus came, and Jesus came to save us and to rescue us. Okay. All right, so how about New Testament then? Let's go to New Testament. Uh, Paul. Paul seems like a really great place to start, right? Paul did a lot of things for God, is celebrated as one of the most godly men, right, to ever live, uh, you and I are here because of the ministry of Paul, called to take the gospel, the message of Jesus, to the Gentiles, to everybody else who's on the outside looking in. 
planted churches, led people to Jesus, did incredible, incredible things. But you know, I'm going to let Paul speak for himself. How did Paul describe his experience of following Jesus and doing the right thing? Was it void of safety or void of risk and danger or full of it? 2 Corinthians 11. Going to 2 Corinthians 11. This is a good passage. You're going to want this one. Might mess you up a little bit. Starting in verse 23, Paul, in his own words, describing what following Jesus looked like for Paul. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I'm more. I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Not a good start. Five times I received the Jews from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. And then get this. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. And following Jesus is supposed to be safe and void of risk. I don't see that anywhere. Anywhere. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was related to Jesus. He had a huge end. Right? You would think if anybody would be spared to be John the Baptist. His mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. You would think that he'd get spared. Of course not. Not John the Baptist. He's imprisoned. And he's confused. Because following Jesus is supposed to be safe. We're supposed to receive the blessings of God. Right? It didn't make sense to John the Baptist. Like It often doesn't make sense, I think, to us. But John the Baptist is called to risk it all. And in the end, he's imprisoned and beheaded. Right? The 12 disciples. I mean, this goes on and on and on. Twelve disciples, right? We have some kind of mixed up history. We don't have full historical proof of every single one of the disciples. It's kind of things here and there. But for most of them, we know that only one of them, we have record, died of natural causes. Just one. The rest of them all died. Crucified, some of them. Others were burned alive. Others were killed by the sword. Others by spear. And for what? For doing exactly what Jesus called them to do. For being his witnesses for being his messengers, of spreading the news of what God had done on the cross through Jesus, that the good news has come. And almost every single one of them lost their lives. And don't forget, perhaps our greatest example, the one we cannot forget, is Jesus himself. Jesus himself, right? We know how that story ends. Right? Yeah, he got up three days later, but he had to die first. Right? What in the world would make us think that if Jesus himself has to suffer and die and risk everything and pay everything, that following Jesus, our lives would be void of risk, that it would be safe, that it would not involve any kind of risk or suffering or pain or discomfort, but would rather be a life of predictability and safety. I don't see that anywhere. Listen, following Jesus is not safe. It's not safe. It has never been safe. It was never meant to be safe. And the only way to make... The only way to avoid risk is to avoid Jesus himself. Because he will constantly call us into situations that are bigger than us, that scare us, that demand more than we can give, that call us to give absolutely everything. Things that don't make sense on paper. Obedience often does not look like wisdom. At least not in a worldly sense. Obedience, doing the the right thing, what God would have us do, rarely involves the safest, most predictable decision. But it almost always involves risk. Sooner or later it will. 
And if you've managed to go through your life and claim the name Christian, and God has never brought you to that point of no return where you have to risk everything in following Jesus, then you're not following the same Jesus I'm following. At least not the one that's talked about in here. Because it is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is full of risk. God does not call us to be people who avoid risk, to a life free from risk, but a life full of risk. Full of risk. The greatest risk, then, the greatest risk is to never risk at all. Right, to choose a path like Saul. To only engage the things that we can see turning out as successful. To white-knuckle our lives and the things in our lives, the things that we can control, and to avoid the things that we can't. That's the greatest risk. The greatest risk is to, get, to never risk and then get at the end of our lives and realize, you know what, I never really lived at all. Listen, if you're bored with your spiritual life, God probably is too. He probably is. Time to take a risk. When's the last time that there was space in your life for God to do something unexplainable? Right? We all want to see miracles. We do. I want to see miracles. But if I'm really honest, most days I don't want to be in a situation that demands one. Right? We need to realize that it's in the context of impossibility that God accomplishes the impossible. We should be crazy. Right? People should look at our lives and be like, you so crazy? You're nuts. You're nuts. Right, when's the last time somebody looked at your life and like, I cannot believe that you risked that. I cannot believe that you tried that. I cannot believe that you gave that much of yourself, not for yourself, but for somebody else. I can't believe that. I don't have a context for that. You're crazy. Right, this is something that Paul was familiar with, and I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.13. Paul knew exactly what this was like. 2 Corinthians 5.13. He says, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're out of our mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. <laughs> but if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. I love that. Right? People should look at our lives. Does anybody look at your life and be like, you are out of your mind. And I kind of want it. You're crazy. I can't believe you tried that. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you sacrificed that much. I can't believe that you took that leap. I can't believe you took that risk. <laughs> Does anybody look at your life and say that? Our lives should be characterized by a certain kind of crazy. I believe our lives should be characterized and marked by regular leaps of faith. When our daughter was not even quite two years old, Paige, she was crazy. Like, she had not, like, her brain hadn't developed to the point where she, like, put together cause and effect. You know, like, certain things will kill you. Um, she had not connected those dots yet. And so it was great. We'd go places, and she was just fearless. Like, nothing got in her way. So we took her swimming. First time she ever went swimming, she went face first. Just walked up to the edge and just went, and just, and it was like, what child does that, you know? And she did learn a, a, an important lesson that day. She learned that she can't breathe underwater, which is an important lesson for a child to learn. Fortunately, I was there when she learned it. Um, but she was crazy that way. And so she loved when I would throw her in the air. In fact, I've got, I've got a picture. I've got my picture of Paige. Yeah. Fearless. I don't do this anymore. Somebody asked me after first service, are you worried about somebody reporting you? Um, well, I wasn't, but I kind of am now. Um, but I don't do that like that anymore. But I would throw her, and she would come back time and time again and, just, and want me to go higher and higher and higher. And we'd go to the pool, and uh, I'd throw her, and I'd catch her, and she'd go in her water, and she'd be co coughing and choking. And, but as soon as she gained her breath back again, she'd start bouncing her legs again. Couldn't talk yet, but she wanted to let me know it's time to fly. I'm ready to go. 
But one of the things in that same like, phase of life that she just could not pick up was also counting. And so we tried. I mean, man, Lord knows we tried. We had, we had Elmo and, and Dora trying to help us out, and we would try to get her to, to count. But she just wasn't having it. She would never say the number one to begin with, ever. She would wait for us to start. So we'd be like, all right, Paige, ready? We're going to count. And we'd say, one. And she'd just smile like, and then she'd jump in on two, you know? And so we tried. We're like, no, you say one. But she wouldn't. She'd always skip one, and she'd go right to two. And then at some point, she also, like in this process, decided, you know what? After two comes three, I'm going to get there eventually, so I might as well just skip three and jump on two. And so she would, without my knowledge, I'd be sitting on the floor working on something, and she'd climb to, like, behind me on top of a couch or a table or a bed frame, and she would just yell out the number two and go airborne. <laughs> and you would think that she'd learn. I mean, it was, it was not safe, I'll say that much. Like, she had bruises, and she gave me a black eye a couple of times. Not kidding. So I knew, like, if I just heard this little voice say, two, that I had a split second to throw my laptop and, like, look for her. <laughs> and try to catch her, and sometimes it didn't work out very well. But it was, it was this beautiful picture of faith, because there was a lot of things at that point Paige just didn't understand, right? She didn't understand. You could really get hurt. You don't do that. But what she didn't understand is that as long as Dad was in the room, it didn't matter how high or how far she jumped that she was going to be okay, right? That eventually that I was going to do my best to catch her. And no matter how high or far it was, no matter how dangerous, no matter how risky, but it was with me there that she was going to be okay. And I love that. I'll never forget that picture. Because I believe that that is what our faith is supposed to look like. Less five-year plan, ten-year plan. More climbing to the toppest, the highest place. Saying, God, I trust you. I'm jumping. Not for my own good, not for my own risk, or my own well-being. Not to benefit myself, but to benefit others. To serve you. And when we do that, it doesn't matter how high, how far. Our safety is not what's guaranteed. What's guaranteed is that God has said he's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us, and apparently God honors that kind of boldness. I think personally that we need a few less self-appointed theologians who study well and live poorly. I think we need less scholars and more crazies. I think we need less people who plan and plan and plan and choose the safe, predictable a very comfortable path. And those who are willing to, like Jonathan, live in the perhaps, to take risks in faith, knowing that it's far better to live with extraordinary faith and possibly just get the chance to see God do extraordinary things than to live in the safety and comfort right, of reading about a God who apparently does extraordinary things in principle. I can't, and maybe it's just the pastor in me, but I, I can't help but imagine how our lives would look different if we lived with that kind of faith the kind of dreams that we'd be willing to dream or the kind of choices we'd be willing to make, the things we'd be willing to risk and try, knowing that perhaps God will act, knowing perhaps God will do the extraordinary. And I can't can't help but imagine what would happen if an entire church did that. How would it change not only our lives, but this world and the city and the lives of, of those all around us? See, I think the greatest risk is a to never really risk at all. To get at the end of their lives and realize, you know what, I never really lived. I never really got to see a miracle. I never got to see God do the extraordinary. Can you imagine if all of us as a church began to live that way? Let's pray. 
Father God, I just need to confess on the front end, Lord, that as much as I want to see you do the extraordinary, as much as I want to be a part of miracles, that most of my life, most of my days and moments, I do not want to find myself in a position that where I need one. That more often than not, I choose the path of least resistance. That I rely more heavy on my own rationale and what makes sense, rather than to the still, small voice inside of me that beckons me to jump. Father God, I would venture to guess that there's a number of us in this room that that is true of. And so, God, I ask for courage. God, I ask that you would change all of our false misconceptions about what it means to follow you, that you would strip us of this idea that following you is somehow safe and comfortable and predictable, that it is doesn't involve risk. God, change our minds about that. And Lord God, as we enter in time of, a time of worship and as we prepare to start another week and go throughout our day, God, I ask that right here, right now, you would begin to enlighten in our own minds to reveal those parts in our lives where we have been choosing what is safe and predictable and comfortable and then surprised when we don't get to see you move in an extraordinary way. Surprised when we're bored with our faith. Because God, I think you are too. So Lord God, I ask that for each person in this room, anybody listening in on the podcast, God, that you would make us into men and women who jump, who see risk not as something to be necessarily avoided, but to be an, see an opportunity for you to accomplish the extraordinary, to do the impossible in and through our lives. Show us those areas of our lives, God, where we need to trust you, where we need to leap, where we need to take a risk. Lord God, we thank you for risking everything and dying on the cross for us. We thank you for being willing to suffer, to die, to enter into time and space, to give us the opportunity to know you and to live in a full, abundant life. And Father God, we ask that you would just Finish what you started. Finish what you started in our lives and in this church. We pray all these things, Lord, as your people. Amen. Well, hey, at this time, uh, we're going to take our offering. And uh, if you're a guest with us, this is the one part of the gathering that is not for you. All right, if you're a guest, just let that thing pass on by you. Uh, Feel absolutely no obligation to give. This is actually for those of us who call Mosaic home and who choose to honor God and serve him with what he's given us financially. Um, One announcement, one announcement is that tonight at 5 o'clock, we have starting point. And so if you're wanting to get connected at Mosaic or learn more about Mosaic, uh, that is the place to start. Uh, It's a place where you can drill us with questions, uh, where we can get to know you, you can get to know us. And uh, that's tonight at 5. If you want more information, uh, just connect to Cindy back at the connections table after the gathering. So... If you would, if you stand, we'll end by worshiping together.